What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Welcome, gang. We got a great weekend. Who's that? Benoit Blanc, the detective? Mr. Blanc, I cannot overstate my gratitude to be here. When's the murder mystery start? When does the murder mystery start? Well, that kind of depends, actually. Maybe November, maybe December, Josh? That's from the trailer for Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, which, yes, does have a limited Thanksgiving week theatrical run before coming to Netflix in time for Christmas. This week on the show, a spoiler-free review of Glass Onion, plus thoughts on Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, She Said, and a couple of Golden Brick recommendations. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. It's our final show together, Josh, before the Thanksgiving holiday. We'll take a little break, but we will have some new film spotting content for you. And we've got a lot to get to this week. Many movies, big and small, to recommend and to talk about. Why don't we jump right in with the one that we actually just came from? Can we call this a still processing review of Glass Onion? We've had a couple of hours, so maybe not quite as quick a of a turnaround as we sometimes do on late Tuesday nights. Um, But yeah, let's just say I'm thankful it's not going to be spoilerific because I don't have to answer if I've figured everything out yet. We can just talk about other stuff. There you go. Benoit Blanc is back. That's Daniel Craig as the world's greatest detective. None of the other characters from the first Knives Out reappear in this film. New ensemble, new setting. That setting is a Greek island, the home of a billionaire played by Edward Norton. He has gathered together some of his friends for a fun-filled murder mystery weekend. Those friends include characters played by Kate Hudson, Dave Bautista, Catherine Hahn, and Leslie Odom Jr. Speaking of spoilers, I don't think it's hard to talk about whodunits generally without getting into spoilers. I do think it's hard to talk about whodunits without getting into spoilers when the twists and turns actually have some teeth to them because the movie has something more on its mind than just entertainment. Is that the case for you here with Glass Onion? I mean, Knives Out certainly did, right? There were political overtones and undertones in that film. And I largely appreciated that approach by Ryan Johnson. Um, Maybe a couple of, I remember talking about a couple of the conversations that were directly political in that movie. I felt like, we're with you. We are, you know, we get it. We don't need the characters to talk about this. Maybe things are a little more subtle here. Maybe mm-hmm. not. I'll be interested to see how people respond. You're right. To maybe give our political reading of this movie, we would have to give too much away. So it might be something we have to save. I'll just say, I think there's meat like that on the bones here as well. And it's interesting. Fair to say off the top, did you read largely the Edward Norton character, this, let me look at his name again, because it's, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Miles, Miles Braun. Braun. Yeah, yeah. Miles Braun. Did you read him 
maybe not as a one-to-one, but a pretty close to an Elon Musk. Maybe that's just where we are right now. You have to. You I have mean, to. He's Elon Musk or he's Peter Thiel or what's the difference? He's an amalgam of yes. both or many others. Yeah. And I'm sure when this was conceived, perhaps he was just like one per, you know, 10% of what Ryan Johnson was thinking about right now with the state of Twitter. Musk is at the forefront of our minds. And so he stood out to me and that is amusing and pointed at the same time, which I think is a good way to describe Glass Onion. It's also a good way to describe Knives Out, right? It can work on these multiple channels, these multiple frequencies at the same, depending on what you're bringing to the movie, what you're looking for in a movie like this, and um, what you want to kind of dig into to take away from it. So did you, did you find that to be the case as well? Yeah, I think we had a very similar reaction. We were both chuckling at a lot of the same moments and lines as we saw this movie together. And yeah, whether it's Thiel or Musk or someone else, it doesn't really matter. Ryan Johnson must have been watching everything that's been unfolding on Twitter and in the media over the past two to three weeks leading up to audiences finally seeing his movie, just shaking his head in delight and <laughs> probably a little depressed too, but there had to be a little bit of delight. Glass Onion is so cleverly and distressingly prescient. <laughs> Some of its timeliness is serendipity. The larger share is a smart writer and director who understands that the roots of these sad farces are as old as our country at least. And this is where I'll get into some of the political talk, but do it in a glancing way, which I think you have to do with this movie. We said it has some teeth to it. That isn't a surprise if you've seen Knives Out, but I don't think it's a surprise if you've seen any of Ryan Johnson's other films, whether they're political or not. He's a filmmaker who has proven that he's not going to devote himself to a project, even if it's a sequel or it's part of a franchise, just for a paycheck or just because someone's giving him a big budget to play around with. He is going to be invested, and he's going to have a point of view. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean a political point of view, though it can. And it certainly does in ways that in both Knives Out movies, I'd say are relatively subtle, and maybe more so here, even though it arguably encompasses even more of the story. You mentioned it. In the first movie, there were some political jokes. They were pointed, and they were more pointed than anything we get here, more explicit, but they were jokes. Now, there was a larger commentary at play in that film, too, right, on class and the exploitation of other races and ethnicities. I don't think Glass Onion is offering that same kind of commentary because it's actually an allegory. And everything I really want to point out and praise about this movie, I can't say (laughs) without giving things away. What I will say is that in some of the same ways The Last Jedi delivered what everyone expected from Star Wars, some of those same thrills that you have to have while also subverting itself, that's what Glass Onion does as well. Yeah, I will just say that you mentioned this movie being prescient in some ways in terms of the whole internet discourse situation and a Musk figure taking over a social media platform. I hope it's prescient if I'm reading the final moments correctly. Let's just say the repudiation that takes place in those final moments. 
I can only plead and hope that it is prescient for what might happen in perhaps the year or two ahead. Let's just leave it there. I know I know where you're going, but I actually have a challenge to that. I okay. think the movie I think the movie is wisely cynical enough to not go for unfounded hope in that moment. And that's that's my challenge to that. Hmm. I don't think it's the repudiation that maybe you're suggesting it is, but we'll have to take that offline as they say. Yeah, Josh. yeah. I think I think we'll get back to that. Let's let's get to maybe a simpler topic here. I want to know you read the cast, most of the people in the cast. Mm-hmm. Who are your top three cast members here? And I'll go first so I can give you some time to think about this. Yeah. Who are having the most fun slash the most fun to watch. Because mm-hmm. for me, Clear Ahead is Daniel Craig in the lead role. He had a ton of fun in Knives Out, but there's more of a lightness and an assurance here. Because for him, Knives Out was, you know... A, li- a bit of a left turn in his career to mm-hmm. do this this Southern detective or whatever the heck Benoit Blanc is supposed to be and move in a direction of comedy like this. It was a risk, right? In a sense, it was a risk. And now you feel like he, he knows that risk has paid off. And so he's just going to enjoy the payoff. And especially this works well in the first maybe 20, 30 minutes when Benoit Blanc has been invited to this island weekend celebration and the others don't quite know why. And so he performs the Southern Rube to garner more information. And it's so amusing because it's working on a couple of levels here, right? You see that it's the it's the performative Benoit Blanc who is my favorite. And just watching Craig have that much fun with it was a delight. So after him, I got to say it was Kate Hudson, also a delight as this, you know, just the ditzy comic timing she brings to her character. And then Norton as the billionaire. Again, an actor who doesn't often do comedy, but I think when he does, you see that there's a natural skill there and he has just a blast lampooning this character from the inside, believing 110% in this character, yet somehow giving us another 90% that's totally eviscerating the character. So we get a 200% performance here. That is my third favorite in terms of who's having the most fun, who's the most fun to watch. Yeah. I started jotting down my answers as you began to talk, and I have the exact same three, slightly different order, but I could also just as easily switch the two and three. I have Daniel Craig first as well in the scenes you mentioned where he is doing a little bit of play acting on top of the performance of Benoit Blanc. Those piercing blue eyes they they glisten just a little brighter you know you you do see that he's having just a little bit more fun there twinkle I have, there's a twinkle yeah, big twinkle to this performance that's an extra twinkle than even what we got in knives out for sure i have norton second and you mentioned the crucial part of that performance which is believing it and this gets at something else we really can't get into but if he doesn't fully commit if he doesn't believe every word that's coming out of his mouth, then we as an audience see through some of the charade. And I actually think some of the larger commentary is foiled. We need that. That's, that's really crucial to the success of this film is Norton's performance. And then I have Hudson third, which isn't to say I don't like what Catherine Hahn's doing or what Dave Batista is doing as well. But I agree. Those three are the ones that really stand out. Now, 
I mentioned that this movie to me functions on the level of an allegory. And that's why maybe I wasn't bothered too much by the fact that the characters, for the most part, come off as caricatures. I think within that framework, we've singled out the ones that are having the most fun. And the one character I truly feel like I wish the movie had done more with was Leslie Odom Jr.'s scientist. Mm. He is obviously an insanely dynamic performer, and he spends the whole movie looking like he's filled with consternation mm-hmm. <laughs> and and not much more. Unfortunately, that's that's what defines his character is that he looks like he's filled with consternation and dread. And we get a little sense that he's making some moral and ethical compromises that are taking its toll on him. That's what's causing this consternation. But the movie really only suggests that and we don't get a whole lot more. So I'm never going to say I wish a movie had less richly developed characters, but in an ensemble allegory where the characters are meant to be stand-ins for certain segments of society, certain parts of whatever system we all think we're a part of, then I really just need them to be accurate reflections of those people. And I think they work on that level here. So you've just helped me figure out a little bit why I didn't engage with his performance that much either, even though I didn't think it was bad. I think he's almost too sincere for what is going on here. Mm-hmm. He, he has an absolute sincerity where where you expect this character to get more scenes to follow through on that. You do. Whereas you have someone like Catherine Hahn who... You know, she wasn't in my top three, but she is also quite amusing here. You give her three seconds of screen time and yeah. the most bland dialogue ever, she's going to do something with it. That's right? right. And so, yeah, I think that's the distinction you're talking about. I, I would say in terms of characterization, you know, here's a difference from Knives Out. Overall, this is a more sprawling, the mystery itself is more sprawling, even mm-hmm. what it involves. There are flashbacks to corporate intrigue. Um, and probably don't want to talk about any more than that, but it is not as self-contained as a family going at each other's throats, which is what we had in Knives Out. And I think there's an intimacy there that you just can't recreate here, but that's a gap that's, you know, just have to acknowledge between the two films. And I think you notice it in that I felt more of a human connection to Ana de Armas and Christopher Plummer and the relationship that their characters had than I did to anyone here in this film, yeah, which it, is it, yeah. maybe okay. Maybe it's okay, right? No, it, you're you're right. But but that's that's sort of one. It's going to be inevitable to compare the two films, and maybe that is one distinction I would point out that to me felt like a little bit of a loss. But again, this is a little bit of a different movie. You're reading it as an allegory. Characters serve different functions when you're dealing with an allegory. That's right, and I think there's no doubt. The gap, as you said, is there in terms of that intimacy, the connection to the family. But again, that's the only way a filmmaker like Ryan Johnson is going to make another movie like this is he's going to do something that's dramatically different. He's not going to try to recreate Knives Out or even the same sort of character dynamics and relationships. So it makes sense to me that he did go more sprawling. You did tap into something I hadn't thought about yet. Honestly, but it does make sense for this film, which is that in Knives Out, we did have characters to root for. And there's really nobody here, at least for the 
first half of the movie or yeah. the bulk of its runtime. There's no one similar here to root for. It's Benoit Blanc. He's the closest thing to that character. And in Knives Out, he's the the white knight who comes in to save the day, but he's not the character that we are following. Here, he really is that character and all the rest are <laughs> kind of vipers, but that makes sense for the subject matter. I think we're given a character who is supposed to be the Ana de Armas equivalent. As you mm-hmm. said, we don't meet this character. That's right. Until halfway through. So that is a bit of a hurdle. We don't, we're not able to build up that attachment earlier. And also I got to say, I have to be vague because this is a spoiler, so I won't name the performer, but I don't think that performance, it's not bad by any means, but it doesn't have the depth that Anadarmus brought to hmm. Knives Out for me at least. And so I think there's there's two hurdles there in order that's keeping me from forming that attachment to the character that I had in Knives Out that I don't hear. I think those are the two reasons. Okay. Well, as you said, maybe getting into a little bit of spoiler territory. So we will just leave it there, though I am a bigger fan of the performance and the performer in question than it sounds like you are here. Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery does open for a one week limited theatrical run around Thanksgiving, and it will come to Netflix on December 23rd. Only the most broken people can be great leaders. Well, Josh, we go from one sequel to another, though a film that is, of course, tethered to this much larger Marvel Cinematic Universe, another film that it's fair to say you have a filmmaker who is trying to do something different or has to take his film in a different direction, though, tragically, due to forces imposed upon this film, who knows what this film exactly would have looked like had it not been for the untimely passing of Chadwick Boseman that did pose some reconfiguring for the screenplay and the film that we finally saw it open last weekend and did big box office, second highest opening of the year. I have to say, I saw this movie this past weekend when I was in upstate New York visiting a college friend and looking at theaters in the Hudson Valley area, Josh, almost every screening was sold out. There were a lot of people going to see Wakanda Forever, and there was a lot of expectations and emotions wrapped up in the film. The first Black Panther was nominated for seven Oscars back in 2019, including Best Picture, then As I mentioned, Chadwick Boseman died unexpectedly in the summer of 2020. Director and co-writer Ryan Coogler chose to honor Boseman with this sequel, and characters in the film are openly reckoning with the death of King T'Challa. Coogler's a filmmaker who I think most of us would agree has been batting a thousand since his 2012 debut, Fruitvale Station. We split on that one, you liking it a lot more than I did, but... We have enjoyed Creed and Black Panther, and it seems like knowing a little bit about how you feel about this film, and of course knowing my reaction that Wakanda Forever feels sadly like his first miss, what's your sense of what went awry with this one? I mean, the MCU went awry, basically. Now, Coogler had to deal with the MCU, as you said, with the first film and managed to wrangle that to his purposes in a way that um, has made it stand out amongst 
all of the franchise's offerings. I've got it in my top, I think my top three MCU films, partly because it has its own separate identity while still existing as it needs to within that cinematic universe. Here, it's just too ungainly of a fit for me. And I know you've you've said, Adam, I, I don't know if you've meant this as a, a negative or a compliment, but you've said to me, sometimes you're you're puzzled by my ability to focus in on one thing I like about a film and ignore all these other problems in it. And if not I were... puzzled so much as impressed okay, with that okay. ability. Either way. And, and I'm not being snarky. Okay. Here, trust me, I tried to do that. I mm. tried so hard to do that because I do think that the moments that nod to Bozeman's passing, starting with a very delicate and touching to me. I mean, I, who would think a studio logo could be touching? But they changed the Marvel logo for this. Usually it shows a bunch of the actors playing different figures in the cinematic universe. Here, every person you see is Bozeman from yeah. a previous film. Yeah. So that's that's a lovely touch, I thought. Uh, and there are scenes of the nation of Wakanda grieving, particularly the women who are left behind by T'Challa having to wrestle with that. A lot of this comes in the first segment of the film, and then the thread just gets lost, and it gets lost by MCU pylon. It gets lost by having to bring in all these extraneous characters we have somewhat seen before. I mean, I... It pains me to say anything negative about Julia Louis-Dreyfus, but why do we need her character who's popped up in a couple series now yeah. showing up in this movie? We don't. There, there's a very awkwardly shoved in origin story, uh, this character Ironheart, that this oh, movie does not look need. at you. I didn't Try, even look that up. <laughs> I had to look it up, Adam. I had to look it up. I knew, I knew the character had to have a name, but because wasn't why go else, that far. Why else would she, played by Dominique exactly. Thorne, who's quite yeah. good, like a a very exciting new presence. It's not a problem with any of the people showing no. up here. It's like, why no. are they also here? Yes. And yes. the reason this is been, this was a very distressful watch for me is not only that interior wrestling of how much can I just say, but the grieving stuff is good, but the grieving stuff is good, but it's also, man, Adam, this thing looked awful. I'm curious to hear about your screening in another state at another mm -hmm. chain. Mm -hmm. I have heard, I've, I've seen people say how beautiful it is, other critics as well, but I've also heard a lot of people talk about how muddy and dreary this is. And perhaps we're just referring to different scenes. Once again, those grieving sequences of the funeral rites in Wakanda are right. clear and crisp and beautiful. They don't involve CGI. They seem to be taking place on actual sets. Mm -hmm. They're in the daylight. But a lot of this film is at night. It's underwater. In some yes. of the most underwater <laughs> yep. cinematography I've ever seen. And that just weighed on me eventually. And I, I just, I couldn't come out on the positive side of this, even though I tried very, very hard. Yeah, I couldn't either. And we'll go back to your first point first. The MCU's mechanics are too oppressive to allow for true mournful meditation. <laughs> and you use this word to talk about Knives Out. You said sprawling. Well, what's bigger than sprawling? This this film actually, to Kugler's credit, it coheres way more than it should, considering how expansive and overloaded it is. You've already touched on some of these, but how many characters are we introducing or greatly expanding? 
You've got Riri, who you mentioned is Ironheart, being launched by this film. Namor, the villain. But then you also have Shuri, Nakia, Okoye, Ramonda, M'Baku. That's Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o, Danae Guerrera, Angela Bassett, and Winston Duke, respectively. All requiring significant development and time. And all feeling like, for the most part, they're all being set up for larger roles and taking on different parts. Of you would the hope MCU. so because they're pretty much dropped here. Yeah. Martin Freeman, you mentioned Julie Louis Dreyfus, the new CIA director, not listed on IMDb. So I don't know if we're giving anything away there, Josh or not, but you've got her, you've got Ross. That's Freeman's character who is part of the CIA. We've seen him before in other films. They're also here kind of, <laughs> It's kind of like a plot get out of jail free card where, hey, we need to expedite this action. Let's throw it to Ross and he can say a few lines and move the whole thing along. And it feels so hollow. And just at the point at the end where you're thinking, wow, we really haven't seen these characters for a while. What was the point of that entire thread? They throw something in at the very end, but that's exactly what it is. It's a throw in. And you're exactly right. I saw others complain about this as well, so I don't feel like I can put it on my theater, though the theater I saw it in, I wouldn't exactly say was state-of-the-art cinema. The projection absolutely could have contributed, but it was legitimately hard to see. A yes. good chunk of this film, either shot in darkness or in the rain or in the ocean or the sea or in the darkness of the ocean. And I think we've all come to terms with the fact that this is a way to cover all of that CGI and this underwater world, of course, and Namor and his abilities require that you're doing some CGI. But I did find myself for a good chunk of the film, just straining to follow what was happening on screen, Josh, much less actually engage with it. And it's not even the underwater scenes. Think of that early sequence. Again, a good one for what is noteworthy in this film is the time it gives to the notion of grieving. There's an right. early scene Mother of, and daughter talking. Yes. Queen Ramonda, yeah. Angela Bassett, and Princess Shuri, Letitia Wright, by a lake or a river at night. They're by a fire talking about how they're both wrestling in different ways with T'Challa's passing. And I couldn't, I could barely see who was who. And I just can't fathom that. I, I was hoping it was a matter of projection because I can't fathom, you know, a filmmaker as, as talented as Kugler is, was able to, would even want something like this, you know, out there. It just undercuts the moment. And, um, I was just kind of shocked. Honestly, it was that aesthetic element that put me over the edge where the thing became a slog. It did become a slog. Now I want to go back to, um, you know, some of these performances, because I think, especially when these actresses do get these moments and we can see them, that they're doing some very strong, different work in terms mm -hmm. of actually facing the emotions of this sort of loss. And I think there is meta value. I don't think it's, it's exploitative of all of Bozeman's actual passing. I think it's a very delicate, well-handled way of going about this and addressing it. Angela Bassett, I mean, I said before how they're all kind of dropped out of the, the film, but 
while she is given screen time and she's given mm-hmm. more screen time than I would have expected, way more than you she gets in Black Panther. She's incredible. I mean, she's a, is yeah. in full on goddess mode. Yeah. Then the I was, UN scene is a powerhouse. Oh wow, yeah. And I'm thinking here, okay, if the movie had to choose one of these women to kind of focus on and make it her story so that we could become invested, then I actually wanted to be Queen Ramonda. I mean, I know that the movie wants it to be Shuri, right? Yes. And I just don't know that Letitia Wright, especially when she's up on the screen against against Angela Bassett, has that gravitas. I would have wished this movie had been all about Queen Ramonda's experience. Now, I want to say because this is something where I, you know, I'm coming from a different perspective on this. There was a really interesting comment on my Letterbox review of this film from someone pointing out how the movie is intentionally taking a African perspective on the grieving process, which this person said is more communal. They were pushing back on my claim that we didn't have a central figure to root for that made the movie hard to lock into. Mm -hmm. So this person was saying, well, an African to their to their understanding, an African understanding of grieving is it is communal. And the movie is trying to paint this portrait of what it would be like that a loss like this affects the whole society, an entire nation in a way that the movie is trying to encompassed by being this expansive. Okay. And so I want to But it not- funnels all that grief through just really those two characters. Well, and and for me, it wasn't that I I'm objecting to that philosophy mm-hmm. or even trying to depict that. I just even if that's what it was going for, I don't think it succeeds on that count because the community is just chopped up into these little stories and then they mm-hmm. completely fall away as the MCU stuff takes over. So I think that's a point well taken in how else to think about this movie. Sure. I still don't know that if that was the movie's intent, it succeeds on that count. There was another issue I had that's actually the same dilemma the first movie posed, which is there was so much energy spent at the end of Black Panther watching black people having to battle other black people, the good guys killing other good guys. And here it's the Wakandans versus the Talukans. And if we can't say both parties are oppressed at this point, they're both under the same threat of being oppressed. So how do you get roused watching them fight in all of this commotion, all this time and attention devoted to these fight scenes when that underlying tension is something the movie really wants you to forget about, I think. That's it. Yes, that last part is it. Because I wrestled with this question quite a bit. As that scene is going on, the one in particular on the ship um, in the middle of the ocean yes. where both people from both nations are are like killing each other, I was I was like, this is depressing in the same way you're describing. Like, mm-hmm. this is just depressing. But but then I realized, like, well, isn't that supposed to be the point that that we're supposed to be mourning this? And yes, thematically, but cinematically, it was not. Cinematically, no. that sequence was meant to be exciting, yes. thrilling. We were supposed to be, you know, wowed by the acrobatics that Shuri is demonstrating. Marveling, you might yes, say. Exactly. And, <laughs> yes. and you're right. That's where that's where the it doesn't work. You either want to present this as, as something that should be mournful, like I was recognizing thematically as mournful, mm-hmm. yet then cinematically it has to match that mournfulness. And that sequence for me, at least it was very jarring for the yeah. that reason you described. Yeah, it, it 
it's not focusing on at all the casualties or the horrors of war. So then there's really no stakes. And at one point, you're left with what inevitably happens in a lot of these movies. When the spectacle is at its apex, as you described it, it's sufficiently distracting. <laughs> You've got swarms of attackers and characters flying around in fancy suits that they just made in two and a half minutes of screen time until the moment where the spectacle is broken. It has to be stripped away and you're forced to recognize that you're really just watching a group of people in costumes holding weapons, advancing on another group of people in costumes, defending themselves with other objects, supposedly on the deck of a massive ship. And the whole illusion yeah. just completely <laughs> breaks down. The The spell is completely broken. I mean, I've you know, you hear people referencing that this Marvel film was shot in a parking lot. I don't I don't know if if that's actually the case or it's just a facetious way of of talking about not liking CGI green screen work. But I will tell you that whole battleship sequence absolutely felt like it could have been shot in my garage. Yeah. And um, it's just another example of the aesthetic failure that. I saw here, which is unfortunate. I think Black Panther was was wobbly in its in its action. There were some scenes, the fight scenes on the at the waterfall were expertly choreographed and handled and obviously not taking place on a real waterfall, but used effects in an effective way. Other scenes, the climactic battle, I think, in Black Panther were way too CGI heavy and dark. So there was a little bit of give and take in that film here. I don't know, man. It's just, it, it's, it's a lot of fake blah. Tanaka Huerta is the actor who plays Namor. I do think he's good. I think there are some interesting strands to that character as a supposed villain. And I mentioned the UN scene where I think Bassett is really wonderful, but I like how that is also staged. I think the ambush on the U.S. outpost despite the fact that it's another one where you have to strain to see it is really eerily staged as well. So there are some nice elements, especially early in the film, but I'm with you, Josh. I was ultimately worn down by Wakanda forever, which is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We'll get back to some positivity with a couple of golden brick recommendations when we come back. Plus my review of she said, and a little massacre theater. Stay with us. My son. Been almost a year. Your son? Yes. I need to bring him here. Very soon, Lamin. Always very soon. That's from the trailer for Nanny, which opens in limited release on the 23rd. It's the feature debut from director Nikiyatu Jusu and stars Anna Diop as an undocumented immigrant from Senegal who takes a job as a nanny for a wealthy Manhattan couple. As she makes plans to bring her young son to join her in the States, she becomes the target of a mysterious and violent presence. This film was the Grand Jury Prize winner, Josh, at Sundance earlier this year. We both caught up with it back in early October ahead of its screening at the Chicago International Film Festival. Diop was on hand 
at the fest and was awarded its Rising Star Award. You wrote in your letterboxed entry at the time that although you're usually in favor of injecting a little bit of genre into any story, you wish that maybe Jusu had played this one more straight. I'd love to hear more thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I do like the film. I want to recommend it, as I think you do, for Golden Brick consideration. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great stuff going on here, but I was surprised to find one of the main reasons I was excited about seeing this is knowing it had this supernatural, perhaps even horror element. And then, indeed, we do find as the movie begins that it touches on this myth of the African water spirit, Mamiwata. I was unfamiliar with this, interesting to learn about it. And how it interweaves with this story of this Senegalese immigrant working as a Manhattan nanny. But it takes a while to get to those supernatural elements in the film. I think maybe the score, this this sort of um, eerie score, is the only thing that hints we're heading in that direction. And I was pretty engaged in what Aisha was experiencing just with this everyday non-supernatural life that she's leading, wanting to bring her son to live with her while also caring for someone else's child and the challenges that poses. So that's all to its credit, including Diop's performance. I do think once the metaphysical stuff, the supernatural stuff comes in, it makes some for some very striking visuals yeah. that, you know, are maybe one of the most exciting things to Mark Jusu as a rising filmmaker. But they didn't quite seem to merge as seamlessly with the narrative as I would have hoped. They don't build upon each other in quite the way they needed to, to be suspensefully illuminating that similar stories, genre stories do. And so, again, it's just one of those things I found myself in this odd place thinking, I wonder if I would have liked that even more if this whole myth of the water spirit had not been Mm. involved so much. Yeah, in terms of why we are positioning this film as a Golden Brick candidate, the Golden Brick being our award that goes out every year to a new or emerging filmmaker showing real artistic ambition or vision, the way Jusu visually manifests Aisha's pervasive dread is suffocatingly effective. And it's so suffocatingly effective and it's so dread-filled that I wouldn't describe this film as an easy watch. And yet, It's a film, having seen it six weeks ago, I do feel like I badly need to rewatch it. And I would love to wrestle a little bit more, Josh, with what you're describing in terms of the horror element and might the movie somehow have been even more effective if it had stripped it away. I do think that then it becomes almost what you'd expect more from a documentary, which is just this domestic tale of struggle and strife and a character trying to provide for her family. And of course, as you know, better than I do and better than most, or at least it's more present in your mind these days, having finished the manuscript of your book about horror, that supernatural element, these presences, the violence that may be inflicted on these characters, whether actually physically or psychologically, is usually a representation of some larger type of haunting, right? Mm -hmm. Some other type of spirit. And this is how it manifests itself. And we've seen it, whether it's some kind of trauma in their lives or grief, filmmakers choose to view it through that horror lens. And here, that element seems to me is guilt. It's Mm. the guilt of having left behind her son. And no matter what she's doing to try to bring him over, she seems increasingly aware of a disconnect and a chasm between them that she 
a physical, literal chasm in terms of space, but also opening up psychologically that she she just can't walk. She can't she can't close. And in not being able to close it, it opens up this supernatural element, this this feeling that something is imposing itself on her. So in that sense, I went for it. One of the things I was thinking about is the way in horror films, when we watch characters who are undergoing something like this, they're experiencing these kinds of things. Usually the film is very clear about whether or not it's quote unquote really happening. You know, it's supernatural, but that doesn't mean that it's not actually happening, that there isn't a monster, that the Jason isn't really there, or maybe that's a bad example because he's just a guy in a mask, but Freddy Krueger or a presence like that is real and is inflicting pain on these kids. Or of course, it is something that they're just experiencing. These are visions that they are having. And this movie kind of wants to have it both ways in a, in a way that I don't know in the moment I found to be effective more than a little bit confounding, but that's another thing on a rewatch. I wonder if I'd find easier to navigate. Yeah. What you're describing, I usually associate with, you know, like psychological horror. And a lot of times we're left in that gray space until something is revealed at the end that sometimes answers it. Not always though. Sometimes we're even left. And I think I like those that leave us wondering, okay, how much of that actually did happen, even though the movie might leave us with a more clear understanding of the emotional state or the psychological state of the character. I think your reading is good. I like that about this being a manifestation of Aisha's guilt in one way. Another thing that I was thinking about while watching it, and I was clued in by a question she is asked, and I forget who exactly asks her this, but I think she's discussing with this character the predicament of having her son away from her and having to essentially play mother to someone else's child. And she's asked, how do you use your rage? And I thought that was really instructive in thinking about, okay, could this spirit be also a manifestation of her rage, maybe alongside her guilt, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. I, I think that's provocative as well. Again, it's mm -hmm. also something I, I was thinking, it, it's more just because those elements didn't just connect quite as neatly as I might have liked in the narrative. I stepped back and thought that's what that would be a really interesting question of a woman who didn't even have to deal with this, these visions. Just a woman in this situation asked, how do you use your rage? So again, we're getting, I'm getting into that dicey territory of, you know, talk about the movie you saw, not the one you would have liked. Yeah. And, and we don't want to do that. So maybe it's not even worth spending any more time on my, my reaction in that sense. But bottom line is if this sounds intriguing as you know, a straight drama of an immigrant experience or uh, a piece of psychological horror, do check Nanny out. I think we'd both recommend you do that. Yeah. And not only because of the visuals, the direction and the style of this film, as we mentioned, the use of color here in particular, it's a very lush film. And it's one that while I'll admit, I don't feel equipped to go in depth on this, but this topic that's come up quite a bit recently, in particular with the movie Armageddon Time about directors knowing how to light black faces. You watch a film like this, and if maybe that doesn't seem like it resonates with you or you understand what that means, what the distinction is or what some of the subtleties and nuances are, and then you watch a film like Nanny and you go, oh, I get it. That's yeah. that's how it should look. That's a good and you point. You can look at any stills from this movie and I think understand that. In addition to Diop, I also want to mention, I think Cinqua Walls oh, he's so is good. Malik 
There are a couple characters, maybe more than that, every year on screen, usually new faces you've never seen before, who every time they appear in the movie, you're just happy they're there. Yes. And you love hanging out with them. And he's this one presence in her life that doesn't bring any malevolence at all, right? And, and is always a little beacon of happiness and I'm so optimism. Glad. I'm so glad you called him out. I think he's I, so good. Yeah, I had a note about him and, and just didn't quite know how to fit it in. He's the doorman of the building mm -hmm. where Aisha works as a nanny. And I think it ties back to what I was saying. They have a wonderful date sequence where they go on a date together. And it's just two people hanging out, dealing with their actual real world problems. And I think it's a scene like that where I was just like... That's all I need, man. Mm. You're nailing with these performers and this story and this direction. Like you're nailing this. This is all. This is all I needed. So, yeah, I'm really glad you you highlighted him. Nanny opens in limited release again on November 23rd. And if you get a chance to see it, let us know what you thought. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You've got another quick Golden Brick recommendation, Adam, for the new doc Bad Axe. This comes from director David Siv. It was the documentary feature winner at this year's South by Southwest Film Fest. The evocative title is the name of the rural Michigan town where Siv grew up and where his parents own and run a restaurant. His parents, who fled their native Cambodia during the Khmer Rouge's reign of terror in the late 70s, and his siblings are the subjects of Siv's film, which documents their struggle to keep their business afloat during the pandemic and during a rise in anti-Asian sentiment during the Trump presidency. Tell me more about Bad Axe, Adam, uh, where I can find it and what you thought of it. Yeah, I think this film reminds me of and will probably remind a lot of viewers of another film that was a nominee for the film spotting Golden Brick and in fact was the winner of the Golden Brick a few years ago. And that's Bing Liu's documentary Minding the Gap. Bad Axe is not on the level of Minding the Gap for me, but the two films do share some significant DNA, Josh. You've got a minority filmmaker exploring his and his family's own story. These are fundamentally immigrant stories. David here, David Siv, is a more reluctant character within the story than Bing is. And I think another significant difference between the two films is that while filming Mining the Gap, the process of filming certainly provoked surprises and revelations for Bing Liu. With that film, he knew the overall arc of the story he wanted to tell. The conceit of Bad Axe is, is that David doesn't really know what or why he's filming, but he's a filmmaker. He's back at home living with his parents during COVID. He's fled New York City with his girlfriend. He just knows that this is what he does and what he wants to do. And it feels important to chronicle this time when the country and his community and his family is in the midst of all this tumult. They're dealing with the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and its impact on the community, Trumpism and its impact on the community. And it explores how all of these people coexisted more or less peacefully, Josh, for decades with this restaurant here owned and operated by a Cambodian family as a pillar of the community. And now they're they're drawing battle lines, just like the rest of the country is. Racist rhetoric against Asian Americans has become a real problem. If this community turns against us, then our whole lives can be wiped away. You're going to end up digging yourself your own grave. We got this letter today from a very angry customer. My family and many will be changing our restaurant routine, and Rachel's is no longer a choice. You could return to Cambodia for opportunity. 
the whole film is unfolding in front of him. And what it all means or the significance of it is something he's going to figure out later when he's putting it together and when he sees how the story resolves or doesn't resolve. But what he thinks is going to be a love letter to the city, to his community, to bad acts, really becomes a love letter to his family. And that real-time approach does mean that Siv has to get through several months. This is a movie that has a running time of just around 100 minutes, and he's going from the very start of the pandemic to Biden's election. So you do get four or five montages in this movie that all kind of feel the same, a little repetitive, same style of music, snapshots of the family and activity in the restaurant and the community. I do wish there was a more creative way to differentiate those sequences and make them feel additive and not just kind of obligatory that they're they're filling in blanks that we need filled in. But you mentioned the award it won at South by Southwest. It's got a long list of awards. Every fest it goes to, people are reacting to this film. Won the Critics' Choice Award for Best First Doc Feature, won the Grand Jury Award at Telluride, and I think Bad Axe is a curious and compassionate portrait of a country, community, and family in flux. And as sociopolitically topical as it is, what lingers are the emotionally introspective ways the family members change during this volatile time how it brings them closer. I don't think I'm probably alone, Josh, in having that reaction and ultimately being moved by this film the way audiences seem to be. I'm not going to put it up there as one of the funniest moments of the year, but I do want to point out a shot I loved, the irony of it, whether (laughs) David Siv was trying to make it ironically humorous or not. There's one shot of a guy standing on the street with a big sign that says, take off your masks and you can't see his face because he's wearing completely covering his head, a ski mask (laughs) lost on him. (laughs) I think the irony of that, Josh, but bad Axe is out exclusively in theaters and anywhere you rent movies right now as of November 18th. All right. If you see it and agree or disagree with Adam's review, let us know. Send us an email at feedback at filmspotting.net. Another Golden Brick recommendation there. We're going to be announcing our Golden Brick finalists soon. I think we might be up to maybe 10 films we've highlighted over the course of the year, Adam. So we'll whittle those down to the finalists in a couple of weeks. A complete list of Golden Brick nominees is at filmspotting.net slash bricks. Next week, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of an off week for us with the holiday. We do have some new content to share with you, though. Part of that is a conversation I had with David Kajanik. He's the screenwriter of Luca Guadagnino's new one, Bones and All. Hadn't seen the film, still haven't seen the film. So, of course, I wasn't able to talk to him about it specifically. But the focus of our conversation was about the process of adapting for the screen. And this film is actually his third collaboration with Guadagnino. He also wrote Suspiria and A Bigger Splash. Bones and All is the new one with Timothy Chalamet that comes out in wide release this week. I talked to him in conjunction with the Refocus Film Festival in Iowa City. And that's the event that Sam, our producer and original co-host of the show, joined me for. We had a Nice live talk in front of an audience there about some of our favorite recent films adapted from other material. And we're going to share that audio in addition to my conversation with Kajanik next week on the show. So it's a very literary centric show next week. 
yes, get out your 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 what your your pipes and your sweater vests maybe that's right for that sure one. yeah then, smoking jackets whatever <laughs> when we're back together adam the following week we're going to have a review of spielberg's the fablemans and maybe we'll see how screenings work out possibly we'll also discuss sarah polly's women talking we're also going to have the results from the current fablemans inspired film spotting poll which asks who made the best autobiographical film or films of the last decade the options Almodovar, Quaran, Lee Isaac Chung, Greta Gerwig, Joanna Hogg, or Richard Linklater. Currently, Gerwig and Lady Bird out in front, not a shock from film spotting listeners. And it looks like Alfonso Quaran and Richard Linklater are battling for second place. You can vote in that poll and please do leave us a comment at filmspotting.net. We love to give away free stuff here on Film Spotting, sometimes free passes, sometimes Blu rays. And we recently got a hold of five blu-ray copies of top gun maverick and i think this is the most enthusiasm josh we've had for any contest ever people love this film yeah and it was a good question too that our producer sam posed in order to enter you had to tell us what your favorite tom cruise decade not just your favorite film but a decade's worth of output and I posed it on Twitter as well, pulled winners from both the mailbag and Twitter. When I did it on Twitter, I actually asked listeners to power rank the decades, not just pick their favorites. So we've got a little bit of both here. We'll start, Josh, with a couple of random winners pulled from Twitter. This is from at ContraZoomPod. Went ahead and ranked them in descending order, 2010s at the top, then 2000s, 1990s, 1980s, and said, I think he's gotten better with age. How about that? Makes sense to me. I think it's a strong argument. Maybe a little contrarian there going against conventional wisdom, but yeah, 2010s at the top. We also got this from at Adam Joseph 83. I think I have to go with 90s cruise first, then 2010s cruise, followed by 80s cruise, and lastly, 2000s cruise. So danced around a little bit there in time. I think almost all could be interchangeable though, he says. Okay. (laughs) Here's a note from Mohammed A., Best Tom Cruise decade definitely comes down to 80s versus 90s. Color of Money would normally be enough to give the 80s the edge, but you just can't beat a decade that includes movies with Kubrick and PTA, not to mention the wonderfully weird Interview with the Vampire and two of the most quotable movies of all time in Jerry Maguire and A Few Good Men. Arguing against the 90s would be an up-at-dawn, pride-swallowing siege 90s for the win. Alex Cartman from McCordsville, Indiana, is also a winner. Cruz is so aligned with doing his own stunts now. I have to vote for the decade he was pushed to do stunts more than sliding across hardwood floors in socks or playing beach volleyball, the 90s. How about the work in cocktail with the shakers? In the 90s, we get the iconic CIA wire hang and wheelchair racing, along with Cruz finally breaking into emotional depths and vulnerability with Magnolia and Jerry Maguire. I mean, someone I think needs to see Born on the 4th of July, but okay. All right. Here's Michael (laughs) Thomas from Oak Park, Illinois. I know Oak Park fairly well. My vote for Tom Cruise's best decade in the 1980s, especially for his performance in Rain Man. Example, given the scene in the hotel when Tom Cruise's Charlie discovers that Dustin Hoffman's Raymond is Rain Man. In that scene, Cruise emotes nostalgia, as when he and Raymond sing When I Saw Her Standing There, wonder at the discovery of Raymond's identity, shock and fear when Raymond has a mini meltdown, determination as he brings Raymond out of that meltdown, and brotherly care as he helps Raymond turn in for the night. All this in a five-minute scene. This movie, plus The Color of Money, Top Gun, Born on the Fourth of July, Risky Business and the Outsiders, I present 
as material evidence of the 1980s being Tom Cruise's <sighs> best decade. I'm I'm with you. I don't think I had the 80s first. I had them maybe second, but Michael, you've just listed some real gems there and some really good cruise performances. And that scene is one I've referenced over the years of doing film spotting multiple times, or not that scene, I should say, but that performance opposite Dustin Hoffman and specifically the premiere article I remember reading at the time of the Oscars and William Goldman, the great screenwriter, blowing my mind because I was fairly young then and Cruz was Cruz. He was kind of the big star, but I didn't think of him as really a serious actor. And Dustin Hoffman is playing this character with all these ticks, Josh. You know, it was definitely the Oscar caliber performance. And William Goldman's like, no, Dustin Hoffman's fine, but Tom Cruise is the one doing all the heavy lifting in that film. Completely changed how I saw Cruise and also thought about acting. But I digress. Congrats to all of our winners. Please email us, feedback at filmspotting.net with your address, and we will get you your own copy of Top Gun Maverick, which is out now on 4K UHD. The 4K UHD disc has over 80 minutes of behind-the-scenes bonus content. It's available at participating retailers, also available on digital, and it's rated PG-13 from Paramount Pictures. Adam, I don't know if this has started to put the pressure on you for our live show in January. If you're starting to feel the heat now that tickets are actually on sale, the show isn't going to be till Saturday, January 14. We're going to be in New York at the Bell House in Brooklyn, 8 p.m. start, and it's going to be our 2022 rap party. So our favorite movie moments of the year, funniest scenes, most moving moments, favorite music moments, plus our pick for scenes of the year. I know we have this in the back of our minds all year long, Adam. We know this show mm -hmm. is coming for the first time in a couple of years now. It'll be live again. Have you started preparing? No, I, of course, haven't started preparing. Other than, I mean, you mentioned feeling any pressure. I'm feeling the pressure of being back in front of a crowd, and I'm going on Rocky-like 5 a.m. jogs and just eating raw eggs to try to get in fighting shape. <laughs> but my picks, those will sort themselves out. I didn't know that was that was part of your regimen. We're going to get some help. This is the good thing. It's not just going to yeah. be us up there. We've got some great guests. Dana Stevens, Griffin Newman, Allison Wilmore, and Matt Singer. They're all going to join us for, I don't know, we might have a person for each category. we got to figure all that out. But they're going to be there. They're going to be participating it's going to be a blast. These live shows are always a little intimidating, but the rap parties end up being incredible fun. And if you want to be a part of it, if you're in New York City, if you just want to come to New York City in January, please join us. You can get tickets and more information at filmspotting.net slash events. You know, as much as I love our listeners, I may be most excited about the dorm-like experience we're going to be recreating at the Airbnb, <laughs> me, you, and Sam all living together for two nights. Recreating? I mean... Uh, you and Sam might have done this at some point, but this is well, going to be a first for me. I mean, I mean, separately, but we've all had that dorm-like experience before. Mm -hmm. I'm just not I'm together. very fastidious, Adam. Oh, I know, Josh, and that's that's one way that we both definitely get along. So that'll work well. I do want to mention that if you want to hang out with me and Josh and Sam, and also Dana, Griffin, Allison, Matt, you not only can be in the venue of the Bell House and watch us do whatever it is we do, but you can actually hang out with us. VIP tickets are available. Grab some drinks before the show, hang out, talk movies, talk whatever. Again, filmspotting.net slash events. 
We also wanted to share a quick note about our new membership platform, the Film Spotting Family on Supporting Cast. For as little as $4.99 a month, you get access to the complete archives or monthly bonus shows and other exclusive fun opportunities. Opportunities like contributing to Film Spotting's greatest films of all time list. We said, sight and sound, we don't need you. We've got the Film Spotting family. Yeah, you've had we this long this. enough. We got it covered. We're going to release our own poll. Soon to be more revered, respected, and yes. I think considered the ultimate authority on this matter. I agree. Yeah, I, I think that's all accurate. We invited our family members to submit ballots with their picks for the 10 greatest films of all time. No order, just like sight and sound. No defining of what greatest meant. You had to do that on your own. It's subjective. You just had 10 blanks. You had to submit 10 films. No, you couldn't pull an Adam cheat and put The Godfather and The Godfather 2 together. You had to put separate titles in each blank. Our plan was and is to compile all those submissions along with our picks to come up with Film Spotting's greatest films of all time list. We sent out the ballot for the first time to our family members. They get the newsletter. They get this opportunity exclusively as a family member. And Sam said to me, what do you put the over under at? How many entries do you think we're going to get? And I said, seriously, but a little pessimistically, it just, I knew how much it was weighing on me to come up with my list of 10. I figured most people would be like, I don't have time for this. I don't Too need much this work. angst. Yeah. I told Sam 27. I thought despite going out to several hundred people that we would only get maybe about 27 entries. Sam said a hundred. Now, you know how many people submitted because I told you earlier today when we saw each other at the glass onion screening, but pretend I hadn't told you go back a week or so. How many do you think we were going to get? I think I would have been closer to Sam, to be honest with you. I mean, this is okay. the sort of thing that dedicated film spotting listeners just eat up, right? Want to participate, yep. want to jump in the conversation. So yeah, I think I would have been closer to a hundred. Well, all of us were way off because it was well over 300 entries. So this is going to be a pretty definitive list. And we're going to share the results of that list on our November bonus show. Not only will I be there and you'll be there, but Sam will join us and Michael Phillips. So it's bonus bonus. When we get that gang together, we're going to share our personal ballots. Unless, I don't know, I feel like there's been a bug in my family. I'm coming down with something. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I can I'm not no. sure I can say my list. It's 2000, sure. 2001 all over again. It's coming up in a few days. I <laughs> It really has been going through the kids, Josh. Uh -huh. And uh, I don't know. We'll see if our lists have changed much from 10 years ago when we did it back in 2012. For more information about becoming a Film Spotting family member and getting exclusive opportunities like that and getting exclusive shows like this, filmspottingfamily.com is where you go. That's filmspottingfamily.com. Quick note about what's going on over at our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's part one of their McDonough's Discontented Duos pairing. Love the title as always. So yes, they're going to be talking about the Banshees of Innes Sharon and pairing it with McDonough's debut film in Bruges. Both of those star Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. 
All right, Adam, let's do some massacre theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and listeners get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, we massacred this scene. You were the spider in my window. Mm-hmm. You were my first friend. I mean, since I went to live with my aunts, they hated me. Shh, do not think of them now. But what if they find us? What if we don't make it to New York? I'll die if I have to go back to the way I was. They can't make me. Nobody can make you do anything, James. If you do not let them, you are a brave boy. Now to sleep. You have had a very tired making day. That was Susan Sarandon as Miss Spider and Paul Terry as James in 1996's James and the Giant Peach. Adapted from the novel by Roald Dahl by Jonathan Roberts, Carrie Kirkpatrick, and Steve Bloom. Directed by Henry Selleck. A couple of weeks back, along with that massacre, Adam and I had reviews of Armageddon Time, Triangle of Sadness, Causeway, and Selleck's Wendell and Wild. So aside from that connection, why did we choose that scene from James and the Giant Peach? Ed Savoy in Philly says, You're both peaches, but neither of you were the titular fruit in James and the Giant Peach, the subject of your massacre. You pulled that one from the depths of Disney Plus to tie in with your commentary on Wendell and Wilde, the latest from Henry Selleck. You could also have waited for a Luca Guadagnino tie-in, but perhaps it was best you didn't. Uh, I, I see what you did there, Ed. Here's Ken Link from Flagstaff, Arizona. Like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, to which you allude with the name Charlie, it was written by Roald Dahl. Like Wendell and Wild, it featured a duo of sinister siblings as its antagonists. And finally, like your review of Wendell and Wild, your reenactment made me want to watch James and the Giant Peach again. Oh, I'm happy to hear that, Ken. It's, it's really good. You're going to be even happier to hear these nice compliments from Leslie Basho in Waverly, Nova Scotia. Seems like it'd be cold up there. It's getting cold just now here in Chicago. It's got to be. I don't want to know what the temperature is in Nova Scotia. Best performance ever on Massacre Theater, Leslie says. I loved Adam's acting. I don't know why that's in quotes. And Josh's ability to reach the pitch he did and hold it. I'm still recovering. (laughs) I bet you are. I knew the movie was James and the Giant Peach once I made out what Josh said. Second listen. (laughs) But I listened to it. I mean, that's poor allocution or I think that's the right word, Josh. But the emotion. Josh. Yeah, he he understood the emotion. Okay. I listened to it a few more times because it was just funny. Good job. You meant to be funny, right? The obvious connection to last episode's Massacre Theater was your review of Henry Selleck's Wendell and Wilde. I tried to make a connection between this and the other films from your comprehensive reviews, but could not find anything else obvious. No Susan Sarandon, Miss Spider, no Peach, nothing other than a strange voyage of disparate characters that seem to make up Triangle of Sadness. There you go. I know there must be more. But my trivia stops here with the beloved Peach movie. I watched it so many times with my young sons, I knew all the dialogue. However, I probably have not seen it in over 12 years. Thanks for that memory that I had to work for. You guys are the best. Oh, thank you, Leslie. Josh, the film spotting hat, it wasn't that brimming. Maybe they couldn't understand what you were saying. I don't know. I mean, it's always a possibility. But we did get entries, and we do have a winner. Reach into the hat and pick it out. Our winner is Tu Nguyen from Brooklyn. Congratulations to email feedback at filmspotting.net and we'll set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first in the bush. Maybe the most audacious, ambitious, and I'll throw in another A word, absurd 
massacre theater ever. And that seems appropriate for the movie in question, Josh. Yeah, I think this movie is giving us a challenge and we'll hopefully rise to it with with the help of some yeah. some techniques, some techniques yeah. we haven't employed before, I believe. <laughs> well, I, I could use some vocal enhancement. I don't know if Sam will be able to add, <laughs> add some elements. You are going to do your own DIY effort yes. in that regard, and I can't wait. Now, we should be recording this because I can see you. Our listeners aren't going to get the benefit of actually having to watch you attempt this. The towel comes out. <laughs> I I can't wait. I can't wait to do this scene. I'm going to start it off. We did change one name to try to make it, I guess, a little less obvious. Other than that, you're getting the scene. A term. We changed exactly. the term. Too. Yeah, a term. Yeah. Otherwise, you're getting the scene exactly as it is. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? No. And action. You thought yourself worthy? You thought yourself a king? You dishonor this place with your presence. I am a husband, Bongo. But I did not come here because I thought I would win. I know I'm not. You understand me. No mortal has conversed with me since King Arthur. Who are you? No one. I came because I have no choice. I came to save my home. Now the people that I love, I came because what my meal is our only hope. And if that's not good enough, and <laughs> and scene. <laughs> you almost drown. I almost watch Josh drown right in front of me. He's in his closet, but I almost I watch okay. him drown. I think I'm okay. We should have given you more lines. Can you just tell me again? I know this is the word we changed, but what was that? What was that V word, Josh? I didn't quite make it out. <laughs> oh, vibranium. Okay, I I think I think truly the most absurd and maybe the most inspired massacre theater ever. You're gonna have to take it from here. Yeah, if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. I think we're gonna do this with every scene from now on, and we're gonna make this part of the film spotting family. You can only get this content. You could watch it. If you pay for it, that's, that's what we're going to do. Put it behind a paywall. Your deadline is Monday, November 28th. We'll select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. Was any of it intelligible? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. In your previous stories. How did you persuade women to tell you what had happened to them? A case I made was, I can't change what happened to you in the past, but together we may be able to help protect other people truth basically i don't know who we think we are at the movies already talked about four films two more left to go josh look at this 
Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan in the trailer for She Said, directed by Maria Schrader. Mulligan and Kazan play New York Times reporters Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, who wrote the story that helped launch the Me Too movement and shed light on decades of silence around the subject of sexual assault in Hollywood. She Said appears to be made in the same spirit of great journalism movies like the best picture-winning Spotlight and maybe the best movie ever made, Josh, All the President's Men. Are these fair or unfair points of comparison? Well, they're totally unfair. I mean, yeah, I'm not that high on All the President's Men, but you know I adore it. We've revisited it together on the show, and Spotlight was one of the best films of its year. I don't think that's the case here, and I think it's, you know, it's it's a good movie that I liked, but I think it falls short particularly in comparison to those two because I do find the reporting scenes, the newsroom scenes to be the weak points. For a long time, this movie feels like it's just a dramatized summary of those articles. There are a lot of scenes of Mulligan and Kazan kind of just describing what happened, rehashing the news, and then talking to their editors uh, about what they're planning to do, what they've already done. And it feels very much like a catch up the audience to make sure the audience knows what's happening here. It's also kind of strangely structured, just cinematically. A lot of these scenes are really brief. And it honestly felt like a news story, you know, like succinct paragraphs, like you got this, then we're going to give you this, then we're going to give you this. Once the movie settles down, I think it finds a way to be unique and it also finds and makes space for some really good performances. So once the reporters get out there and start interviewing two women in particular, they interview played by Samantha Morton and Jennifer Ely, they get scenes where there's room to breathe. They share their stories and you begin to feel the weight of the terror and just the human cost of Weinstein's reign. And I think that's where she said begins to open up. Uh, I also think Schrader does something interesting and maybe this is in the script uh, as well. A lot of the scenes in these later better moments are set against domestic backdrops or just backdrops that emphasize that these two women reporters have a lot of stuff going on as well at home. So Cantor takes a very important call while she's making her kids' school lunches. Tui, you recognize, we we learn a little bit about her having just had a child and she's been in the throes of postpartum depression. She kind of grabs onto this assignment like a life raft. And even going back to the character that Ellie plays, this former assistant, she decides that I am going to share my story again, risk myself, just before she's undergoing a mastectomy. So what I think all of that does is really bring another nuanced view on the fact that these women are dealing with the psychic weight of Weinstein while also just trying to make it through everyday life, an everyday life that is particularly difficult for them as women because of the societal structures they have to deal with. So they're dealing with this one thing while always dealing with something else that you know, a lot of the men just don't have to. I think that makes, she said, distinct in terms of this journalistic procedural and helps it to stand apart. Takes a little while for the movie to get into that gear. But when it does, I found it to be pretty compelling. Yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get to the screening in advance of its release as you were, Josh. But I'm eager to see, she said, which is currently playing now in wide release. We'd love to hear your thoughts if you get a chance to see it as well. Feedback at filmspotting.net. 
We're going to wrap up with a quick plug for another new documentary, one I had a chance to catch up with called Love Charlie, The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter. That opens in limited release this weekend. It's directed by Rebecca Halpern. And you know me, Josh. Documentaries are my thing. If I have 90 minutes to kill or two hours to kill and there's a new doc I can watch, especially if it's about a great artist, a great influencer, and I mean that in the traditional sense, even more specifically, if it's about an artist I know of, but know relatively little about, I'm going to be interested. And I definitely only knew of Charlie Trotter. I'm curious to hear if you have any more of a relationship to Trotter being from Chicago your entire life. But I think my first exposure to him probably came around the time I moved here to the city in the early 2000s. And I read some interview. I saw something with Stephen King, the horror writer Stephen King. And he just kind of mentioned in passing, they asked him what he was doing for his birthday. And he said something like, I'm doing what I do every birthday. I'm blah, 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 blah. And having dinner with my wife at Charlie Trotter's. And I've been looking for this interview and I can't find it anywhere, but I didn't know that name. He was talking about this restaurant in Chicago. I had no basis for anything that he was talking about and I had to look it up and I started to become a little bit familiar with who he was, but had no sense of his legacy. Late in the film and late in Trotter's life, we see Trotter being recognized at some culinary event or conference and Anthony Bourdain is there. The doc tells us that Bourdain lamented what he perceived as a lack of appreciation towards Trotter from the food culture that Trotter effectively begat. Love Charlie is a successful reclamation of the revolutionary chef's achievements and impact. Its formal inventiveness doesn't match that of its subject with his cuisine. It's pretty conventional. It relies on a lot of sit-down interviews from family and friends and acolytes and some rivals and some patrons and some of his staff. But I do feel like as part of that reclamation, Halpern likely felt some obligation to get these perspectives and insights on the record. This is the first film that's been made about Trotter and his life and his work. I also can't really begrudge Halpern's approach too much because this isn't a situation like Moon Age Daydream or Meet Me in the Bathroom, which I've talked about on the show this year, where you've got copious amounts of sound and imagery to work with, right? We do get in the kitchen a little bit. There are some photos and there's footage, but it's not like there were cameras constantly documenting Trotter's genius at work. That all said, something I do wish I'd gotten more of in the doc was a deeper understanding of his imagination with food and the process of creating it. We understand his drive and his determination, his ambition, his relentless pursuit of perfection, and sometimes the consequences of that pursuit. And we do get some idea of what he thought food could be and should be, but I wish it uncovered a little more about what inspired him, in addition to detailing everyone and everything he inspired. So many people don't know Charlie. They know this persona. He was the first American kid to be really fearless, to invent new things. He had to express himself or he would have exploded. If you're like me, though, you're a sucker for documentaries about artists. And especially if you consider yourself even remotely part of food culture, you enjoy going to restaurants, 
you like trying different things, you're aware of some of these different big chefs out there, you really can't put all of that in context unless you know something about Charlie Trotter. Well, I wish I too could say that I used to spend every birthday eating at Trotter's restaurant, Adam, but alas, it it never mm. happened. Love Charlie is currently playing in limited release. It is also available via video on demand. If you see it and agree or disagree with Adam's review, let us know at feedback at filmspotting.net. Adam, that is our review-packed show. Listeners, if you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting, and I am at Larson on Film. At filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll, which looks ahead to the release of Steven Spielberg's autobiographical new film, The Fablemans. The question, who has made the best autobiographical film or films of the last decade? Also on our website, if you want to get t-shirts or other merch, you can find them at filmspotting.net slash shop. Out in limited release, you can see Bad Axe which I recommended on this show. You can also see The Menu, one I know we both want to catch up with. Speaking of demanding chefs like Charlie Trotter, this one stars Ray Fiennes, Anya Taylor-Joy, and Nicholas Holt. EO is also out from Polish director Jerzy Skolomowski because this is the year of the donkey in cinema. So many donkeys. On digital, you can see A Christmas Story Christmas. Ralphie is all grown up. And has to deal with Christmas and all that goes with it as a dad. That is with Peter Billingsley as the grown-up Ralphie. It's on HBO Max. You can also see Disenchanted, Amy Adams returning as Giselle in the sequel to 2007's Enchanted. This is on Disney+. Plus. Do you happen to know who in our orbit, Josh, maybe even has been mentioned on the show earlier, is among the cast of Disenchanted? Oh my goodness. In our orbit. I'm blowing your mind. And mentioned on the show. Yeah. Um, no. Appearing at our live show in Brooklyn in January, Blank Check's own Griffin Newman is a come voice on, come in on. Disenchanted. Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, also out on digital. This is an animated adaptation of the Dickens tale. And look, I didn't know this was coming out. If I had, I would probably say I don't need another Scrooge in my life. And then I see that it stars Olivia Coleman, Jesse Buckley, and Jonathan Price. I mean, Coleman and Buckley, no offense to Jonathan Price, but those first two might be the two best actors alive right now. They're just doing the voices, Adam. It's it's well, just the voices. Okay, that, that's enough. All right. Spirited is also out. This is a modern day Christmas Carol riff with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell. I'm not going to say they belong in that same conversation, maybe, with Coleman and Buckley. But if you want to compare, that's on Apple TV Plus in wide release. Bones and All, the new one from Luca Guadagnino with Timothy Chalamet, and She Said, recommended by you, Josh. Next week, you'll hear my conversation with the screenwriter of Bones and All, David Kajanik. Learn all about his process of adapting for the screen, and you'll hear myself and Sam Van Halgren talking about some of our favorite movie adaptations. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005.
That's at filmspottingfamily.com. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.